listening to the Stories of Transformation podcast. I'm your host, Bakhtasha Hadi. In each episode, we will talk with some of the most inspiring and courageous individuals who share their unique stories about how they overcame hardships, learned their craft, and found their purpose. These conversations are meant to inform, entertain, and inspire. Okay, happy listening. In this episode of Stories of Transformation, we speak with Dia Khan. Dia Khan is a documentary filmmaker who has been awarded the Emmy twice and a Peabody for her films. She's also the founder of Fuse, which is a media and arts company that puts women, minorities, and third culture kids at the heart of telling their own stories. Dia works to create an intercultural dialogue and understanding by confronting the world's most complex and controversial topics. In her 2012 award-winning film, Banaz, A Love Story, chronicles the life and death of Banaz Mahmoud, who was a young British Kurdish woman murdered by her family in a so-called honor killing. Dia's second film, Jihad, involved two years of interviewing and filmmaking Islamic extremists, convicted terrorists, and former jihadis. Her most recent documentary, White Right, Meeting the Enemy, she spends months getting to know neo-Nazis and is currently streaming on Netflix. Her 2016 TED Talk has over a million views. In the process of making these documentaries and throughout her life as a brown woman, Dia has been spit on, been held at gunpoint, and has received countless rape and death threats. Yet she still walks away from these films with optimism and hope for humanity. In this interview of Stories of Transformation, we get to understand why. It is my distinct pleasure to bring you Dia Khan. Dia, welcome to the podcast. How are you today? <laughs> I'm good. Thank you for having me. It's wonderful to have we you. We started already. <laughs> we started already. But in terms of uh, recording, so let's just get it on here. Yeah. So, um, Dia, it's wonderful to have you here. It's wonderful to finally meet you. I uh, have to tell you, I'm one of your biggest fans. I think I told you this when I first met you randomly at the uh, Cabal Palace here in Virginia. <laughs> Exactly. Totally out of the blue, <laughs> yeah. but uh, as the world has it, you know, forces come together, and when they do, you got to strike while the iron's hot, and that's led us to this conversation. Yeah, and um, very grateful to to get to be here. And it was it was such a surreal, strange. I was in somewhere else in my mind when I walked in, and when you called my name, I was just a bit kind of confused, going, "I'm I'm in Virginia. But who, who's you know who knows my name?" Yeah, yeah. Well, I do. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and the reason why I, I know your work is because you make really impactful, prominent, and important films. You've made three thus Thank far you. that I've seen, Banaz, Jihad, and uh, White Right. Yeah. And uh, they've all made their mark, right? So um, what I would love to do before we get into like your films and the work that you do is I want to ask you, how do you describe what you do? I know people call me a filmmaker now, and, and when people ask me what do you do, that's, you know, that's my answer too. But it's... You know, I have no formal training. I didn't go to school for this. I didn't grow up as a girl dreaming about making films or anything like that. It's just born out of sort of a frustration at not seeing stories about people who look like me and who might have some of the experiences that I have or of people that, that I have lived with and grown up around. Seeing the humanity of people like us diminished or completely ignored is what made me pick up a camera and start making films in the first place. And I think there's two things. One thing that I do or that drives me is a wanting people to understand each other better than we do right now. Uh, because the, the, the consequences of us not understanding each other is not just devastating and unfortunate, but also in many cases, it's also deadly. And the second thing that drives me is that I'm just desperately curious. I'm just, I'm just obsessively curious and, and in wanting to try to understand myself and, and learn myself, 
not just what people do, but I want to understand why people do the things that they do. What makes someone who they are? What is the life journey that somebody has had that have brought them from, you know, coming from potentially a loving family to becoming a terrorist or, mm. or, or you know, becoming the kind of monsters of our, of our cultures mm. and our societies. So wanting to explore those stories and I guess finding the human being at the center of these very complex, difficult, often challenging topics. Now, have you always been that way? When did you realize you came that, to that epiphany in the sense that you wanted to get to know people better by understanding their stories and through engagement? Is that how you started as an artist, as an activist? How did it start? I've always been really interested in people. Like, I love people. <laughs> Uh, and I always have. Uh, so I've always been very sincerely, genuinely interested in people from the person sitting on the bus next to me or uh, is unfortunate enough to get stuck on the bus next to me. I can empathize, actually. <laughs> Yeah. You know, and, and wanting to, you know, if, if, they're, if they're wanting to have a conversation, you know, I, would, I, I like that. And very curious about them and what they go through and why and all of this. Yeah. But I think beyond that, what I've always had, even more than that, is I think being a child that's grown up between different cultures has made me very, very sensitive to the pain that is caused as a result of people not understanding what someone's going through, not understanding what look like differences on the surface. So I think, I think wanting to be someone who can help translate or help people see and connect with what people's lives are like is something that I think I've, I've always been really, really interested in. I mean, I remember, you know, I, I could just as easily sit with my grandfather who's very, very religious. He's passed away now one of the first Pakistani men that moved to Norway. Uh, I could sit with him and, and relate and listen to his stories and, and feel a part of him. And then I could walk outside with, you know, all the white Norwegians and completely understand where they're coming from. But I never felt that anyone could understand where I was coming from and other people like me were coming from. So I wanted people to, I've always wanted people to feel and understand what that's like because I feel like there was so many young people experiencing pain as a result of not being understood, not being heard, not being seen. Uh, and I felt that I knew a part of the, the answer, which is let's start by trying to listen. Because um, that's what you wish somebody would have done for you. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I mean, it's, I, I don't know if you can relate to this or not, but, you know, it's, it's harder to stand up for yourself oftentimes, and it's harder to do something for yourself than it is to do it for somebody else. Why do you think that is? I think because I think sometimes it's easier to see injustice when you see it happening to somebody else. It's as if, you know, the, the lights kind of come on when you see somebody else being treated really poorly. I think you can, it's really blatant and really obvious and you see that this is surely this isn't right and mm. something needs to be done about this. But I think if you're in the midst of some uh, either unhealthy experiences or uh, painful experiences. I think all the, the kind of upheaval of all the feelings that one goes through, I think sometimes are so intense that it's hard to see sometimes when, when you need to say, no, actually, this is not okay. Mm -hmm. I think it's much easier with other people. You know, I mean, things like sexism, racism, a lot mm -hmm. of that. Mm -hmm. I remember being much more, much more clear to me when I would see other people going through it than myself. And then, but then you also learn from that. I mean, I would learn from that and go, oh, hold on, actually, 
people speak to me in that way or, or you know, people treat me in that way. That's, that's hmm. if it's not okay for her to be treated that way, why is it okay for me? So those experiences and that exposure for other people feeling that sense of uh, being put down was mm-hmm. a mirror into how you were treated? Yeah. Oh, that's fascinating. Well, and also, I mean, you know, for example, the jihad film that I did. Yeah. You know, I've I've had very very difficult experiences with extremist men within our own communities for most of my life. So you know, so I have very strong feelings about men like that. But then on the other hand, once I actually sat down with them, the, despite sort of my fears of guys like that and anger at guys like that, once they started speaking and telling me about their stories, I mean, I found myself recognizing my own experiences through their stories. Yeah. Yeah, when they were talking about being discriminated against, when they were talking about, you know, going to, you know, b- being harassed by neo-Nazis and racists and fascists or whatever in London, and for mm-hmm. me it was in Oslo, mm-hmm. I, could, I could see it. And what it felt like to be isolated, what it felt like to be, be made to feel like you're nothing, or when your parents are humiliated because they can't speak the language proper or whatever, you know, all of that, uh, I, could, I could relate to it. Now, what do you think uh, set them on a path of taking action through violence versus picking up a camera. Like, what is the catalyst for, for, for that sort of decision? I think, I think it's a matter of who shows up. So, so what I could relate to mm-hmm. was the, the, the pain and the emotional turmoil that they were going through most of the time for the same reasons that I was, which was, you know, this kind of place of finding yourself being caught between different cultures, finding yourself not understood, finding yourself not included, finding yourself rejected, isolated. I could relate to all of that. Mm -hmm. But obviously, (laughs) where we separate is how they chose to deal with that and how they chose to resolve that Mm -hmm. for them and Mm -hmm. how I chose to resolve it for me. I think the difference lies in, because I've had to think about this a lot, Mm-hmm. Exactly about that question of you know what makes you pick up a cam uh, a gun and I pick up a camera. What, what is the difference? If the feelings, many of the feelings and experiences we've had are similar, what's the difference? And the the answer that I come to is that it's a matter of who shows up in your life at that point. When you're most vulnerable. Yes. When you when, you, when you're at your most broken, at your most uh, low, at your most vulnerable, who is it that shows up? For them, uh, recruiters showed up or gang leaders showed up or people who, who, who wanted to take their anger, their frustrations, their alienation and transform that into violence, transform that into whatever these, these groups or these recruiters were looking for. Or if they were met with a really kind and compassionate, supportive, loving teacher, for example, or a friend or a mentor, or in my case, my mother never, ever, ever gave up on me. And I was also, I mean, I was fortunate enough to have a lot of extraordinary people in my life, a lot of feminists and activists and, and political um, activists that were in my kind of peripheral circle or my mm-hmm. parents' peripheral circle mm-hmm. that, that sort of showed up uh, for me at that time. So I think it's a matter of that. I think it's a matter of who shows up for you. Because at that point, that utter des- desperation, that utter loneliness, that utter kind of feeling of being lost and alone. We all need something at that point. And if somebody comes and exploits that point in our life and misdirects what we're going through into something else, something violent and awful, then that, that's the fate of that person. Or if in like my case and in many other cases, mm-hmm. and I'd be curious to hear about you. Sure, sure, sure. Um, 
then the trajectory becomes something very different. Is no. what I. It's at least that's been my experience. I don't know if you agree with that. I don't know if if you found the same thing. I think what's interesting about being a young man growing up in the United States and feeling like I had my close group of friends growing up, but then there came a moment where I felt like, okay, I'm not, I'm not what I want to be. Hmm. Right, and the world showed me that either by not being able to talk to the right girls or talk to the girls that I wanted to talk to, mm-hmm. or. Um, having parents of those friends of mine saying, no, he can't come over to my house. Hmm. So there was this idea where, you know, I totally felt that, but I think what happened is I, gosh, I'm so blessed as I have wonderful parents. Yeah. I'm so blessed. Not everyone is as blessed as And I think what happens is if you don't have a strong father figure and a strong mother figure there to to hold you. To keep you you rooted. To keep you rooted. or or And loved. And loved or to catch you when you fall. Mm -hmm. Somebody else will come, like literally swoop in, pick you up and say, I'm here, your parents aren't. You know what? Your parents don't even care about you. Exactly. exactly. Your parents care more about their, in the context of the United States, your parents care more about their job than they care about yeah. you. Yeah. Yeah. Or they care more about the rest of the community. Than you. Than you. Or they the care mosque, more about their culture or the mosque more than you. Or people exactly. than you. Exactly. And so in many exactly. ways, I never had that. Yeah. My parents, I think they sacrificed and they knew they found their purpose by giving all they could and taking all they could for us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But not all parents are that way. No, I don't think all parents are like that. But I do think that that is something that so many Muslim parents do. I, mm-hmm. I would say the vast majority do. But mm-hmm. I think even in their intentions of doing that, I think some of them just don't know what their kids are going through in school. And I think especially when we do have multiple cultures at play in, in a child's life, I think it's hard, even when they want to understand, I think it's hard for the parents to quite grapple with, well, what does that really mean? And and how big of an impact does the life of the child outside of the home have on that child? And for me, my mother was a teacher at that point. So she was exposed constantly to brown kids that were going through all kinds of stuff. So she she's always just like forced me to talk to her from day one. I, I, there was nothing that I didn't tell her. Even to this day, I can call her and just uh, from my hello, uh, she can, she can tell, tell. She can tell what that, your mood that is. Not, yeah, that okay, she's not okay now, or 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 she's doing great. You know, let's keep it at five. Does minutes. your mother ever call you in the middle of the day or the night and say, "There's something in my stomach that's telling me that I should call you"? Is everything okay with you? Does she ever get those inclinations to feel like she has to reach out? My mother still does to this. Does day. she? <laughs> yeah. Uh, she hasn't in a really long time, yeah. but she used to. She used to worry and you know be. Yeah. Can I ask you a question? Of course you can. Do you miss it? Do you miss your mother calling you, feeling wor- like worried for you? You know what? I, I get to talk to her a lot. Yeah. Um, so I, I would say no. And the reason I'm saying as nice as it is for, for that one person on planet Earth to care that much about you and to know that much about you is, is lovely. But the reason I would say no, that I don't miss it, is that uh, I think now also having become a mother myself, mm-hmm. I think the agony that she must have been going through when she, you know, would come and find me, you know, in, in London, would come, you know, would just follow me anywhere I'd go just because she just did not want me to feel alone. Yeah, just, I think just what she must have been going through must have been really hard, as, yeah. as soothing as it was for me, yeah. you know, so who's, who's doing that for her? That's interesting. You know, so I'm, I'm actually relieved that she doesn't feel that she has to do that anymore because then I know that I'm, you know, she's not putting her own feelings and her own sleep and sanity on the line. 
Gosh, that's so wonderful. So let's talk about your parents for a second. So you were you were born and raised in Norway. Yeah. And so your first love, your father. Let's talk about your father for a second. Yeah. So he said, I recall in some of your interviews, your 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 role, the role that your father played in your life was quite interesting in the sense that in order for you to succeed, he knew that you had two paths really: sports and music. <laughs> And he didn't know too much about sports, apparently, and so yeah. he chose music for you, yeah. right? Yeah. And so what was your instrument of choice? It was singing. Oh, you It was sang. singing and then piano and, yeah, all kinds of stuff. But it, uh, he loved music. And he, he, having experienced a lot of racism himself mm-hmm. and all of his friends, mm-hmm. he believed that uh, kind of academic success would still mean that if it ever came up at a job opportunity, if it was a white person and me, the white person was always going to succeed and not me. So he believed that as important as, as that was is fine, but but just for a kind of intellectual development more than jobs. So he felt that in terms of professions, yes, yeah, sports or music or the arts in general would be, that's where you will be judged by your talent and your hard work. And even you, if it takes you longer, mm-hmm. even if you're discriminated against in the beginning, eventually your talent, and if you outwork everybody else, <laughs> It should be fine. Now, Dia, did you find that to be the case? Did you find that to be the reality? Mm. Is that how it actually manifested? Well, I did become successful very quickly, but that was, you know, purely sort of, I would say, because I was the only one, you know, I was the only kind of brown child yeah. Yeah. star like that. Yeah. But no, I wouldn't say so, because I think, you know, there's so many things that he didn't really factor in. I mean, he didn't factor in the, the intense levels of sexism that exists within the music and the arts spaces, even to this day. Uh, he didn't factor in the race does matter. You know, there is no space in our culture, in the societies that we live in, that is exempt from race playing a part or race defining aspects of, of what you can and cannot achieve. So no, I don't think he was right in that sense. I mean, I think I'm, you know, he was right in the sense that I probably got to skip past. Mm-hmm. You know, one of his friends was Indian. He was a surgeon of some kind. Uh, very, very accomplished and you know, amazing guy. And you know, he would have white Norwegians come in and say, I don't want that Paki operating on me. You know, so, so yes, I got to skip that uh, part of it. But then, but then I, I you know, was spat at in the face. Mm-hmm. I've been While you're threatened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I've been threatened by, by white people. I, you know, one of the TV channels, I remember getting lots and lots of complaint of, you know, what is this little Paki girl doing on our TV all the time? <laughs> so, you know, so... Now, help, help us understand. So this is what you're getting from white Norwegians, right? So this, this backlash of who is this Packy girl? How is she performing? How is she on TV? Yeah. This is what we want on TV, right? This is the sentiment that's being expressed. Yeah, yeah. So help us understand what's happening within your own community in terms of being a young woman yeah. in the music space with our backgrounds. That's not the yeah. most prestigious or honorable <laughs> thing to do. So how did that play within in your community? No, no great. In the beginning, everyone was sort of fine when I was, because I started when I was seven. Ah, so it was more novel. It, it was a bit kind of like, oh, is it, is it cute? Look at the little yeah. girl. It's really cute. But yeah. then, you know, very quickly it started becoming, you know, I, I was everywhere in the newspapers. I was performing at every kind of major festivals. I was on TV. I was uh, recording. I was doing a lot of work. So I, I was getting a lot of attention. And people within my parents' community were, some were obviously very, very proud and very supportive, but I would say the vast majority were not. Mm -hmm. Um, And they made that known quite quickly Mm -hmm. uh, through coming, I always describe it as delegations of men coming to, uh, to talk to my dad and say, look, you know, we don't even accept our boys having this kind of profession. Why are you letting your girl do this? 
and you know it's a good family this is a, a you know we're decent people why are you doing this because as you know how it's perceived how, is it how perceived? it's perceived you know m- music and 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 any kind of public performance you know is equated with prostitution pretty much right that's that's no news to us mm-hmm. um i didn't really know that as a child because if your father says it's okay it's okay and it's art and your father by and it's a part of your identity it's a part of your culture this is you come from a rich heritage that 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 has extraordinary literature that has extraordinary uh, uh poetry music complex classical forms of music then that's that's what you grow up with but it's curious because your father in many ways was very liberal he was like he wasn't he was very liberal yeah, yeah. he was unusually liberal even in the context of liberal people i think because he was he was very uh, defiant he was very clear about how he wanted to raise me and my brother he was very conscious of the kind of ingredients in a way that he wanted us to have access to like not just art and music but also politics and and human rights was a huge part of our home life mm-hmm. in the sense that he would invite our house was the house of uh political conversations we had political dissidents come from not just pakistan but from the middle eastern region in general a lot of the various muslim countries interesting we had uh theater actresses we had feminists we had classical dancers we had people escaping various uh dictatorships talking about america talking about american foreign policy talking about what was happening in nicaragua at the time, whatever you know and right. also ha- what's happening in those parts of the world and i remember seeing some of these extraordinary women's rights activists from Pakistan sitting there not just shoulder to shoulder with the men but they were sitting there drinking tea talking and some of the 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 men like being in awe of these women so when you know when people say you know muslim women and muslim women come from a context of oppression and all of this that's not the first pictures and experiences that i had growing up i had the experiences of of like lionesses mm-hmm. sitting in front of me extraordinarily accomplished educated brilliant creative women who could go toe to toe with anybody anyway uh i i i divert no you were asking about my father yes yeah, so so he very deliberately mm-hmm. exposed me to all of that from a really young age he wanted me to know that being a girl is not a limitation so he put women like that in front of me that's amazing consciously that's amazing. it is amazing that's amazing and i did not understand that when i was growing up i thought he's too strict he makes me do this he makes me practice he makes me study this and oh my goodness he wants me to read all the different religious texts of all faith oh my goodness what is wrong with this guy you know he just doesn't want me to go play on the in the sandbox <laughs> um so he was incredible absolutely incredible yeah so your parents especially with that exposure your parents essentially gave you this idea that you know this is your framework for understanding the world yeah yeah and they also gave me knowingly or unknowingly this this connection mm-hmm. that very much has become a part of my life over the last decade or so is this connecting point this intersection between art and activism tell me about that what does that mean to me it means creative expression artistic expression in the service of activism in the service of trying to create change in the world uh trying to contribute to the world in a positive way so not just art for the sake of art which there is nothing wrong with that i enjoy that immensely myself but, but that, that is also a place of luxury and privilege it, it very much is and all of the artists that i grew up with that come from our parts of the world were all artists and activists yeah 
because they didn't they couldn't they didn't have exactly they didn't have the luxury or the privilege of separating the two because art is expression of our notion of the worldview that we exactly. experience and exactly. so if you're again to be to be in a place where you make exactly. there's some art that's just like absolutely meaningless to those that understand struggle yeah yeah. And so that's what you're exactly. getting across. Exactly. Right? And and so that, I don't know if my father did that consciously or not, but that intersection, that connection that he gave me is what has what my life has been defined by, I would say. Uh, so it's not so much the music. It's not so much the, the things that he put at the forefront as, you know, these are your keys to your life. It wasn't that. It was everything else that he gave me underneath that. Because the, the music itself was an expression an artistic expression that was very much kind of his design, his sure. his dream. Sure. And as much as I love music, it wasn't the, the the creative and the artistic language that I and my personality and the way that I am, uh, it doesn't fit that. Because you love people. Well, I love it, people and I don't, and I love to listen to people. I mm-hmm. don't want to be on stage. I, I, I know it's kind of bizarre because now I have ended up on stage because of the films. The films that you make, yeah. But even that, you know, when I made Banaz, I remember people saying, oh, you know, you're being asked to do interviews and this, that. And I remember saying, I don't want to. I've done interviews my whole life. I don't want to be on stage. I never wanted to be on stage. Never asked to be on stage. Like, I used to get physically ill. Like, I would throw up before going on stage. I Like, some people are amazing at it. I hated it. I was, yeah. like, doing my obligation and doing what I was trained to do. But I hated it. wanted to dig a hole and disappear. So you found your place behind the camera, not yeah, on stage, yeah. telling and, the and, stories and to of me, others. Yeah, and to me, I was I, my sort of view of it was the film speaks for itself. Whatever I wanted to say, I've already said it. So yeah. I don't want to do the interview. I don't want to come on stage and give a talk yeah. about whatever. I, it's, it's whatever question somebody has, just watch the film. If it doesn't answer it, then I don't have the answer for it. And I was asked to go give a talk mm-hmm. uh, related to the film um, and I and I remember saying no, and then I talked to my brother, my younger brother Adil, and he said, "Look, you have to do it." And I said, "You can shut up. You don't. You know why are you telling me I have to do it?" He said, "Look, you have to do it." And I said, "Why is that?" I said, and I said the same spiel. I said, "Look, I've I've done the film. The film yep. speaks for itself." Blah yep. blah. He said, "Look, they're asking you to come and speak about this for a reason. It's because people need to hear more." And he also said, he said, "Look." Banaz, so uh, I mean, for, for your listeners who, who don't mm-hmm. know about Banaz, she was a, a young Kurdish, uh, well, she was a girl when she came to move to, her parents moved to South London. At the age of 17, she was put into a terribly, terribly violent uh, marriage uh, on the decision of her, her, her father and uncle. She tried to honor that, that arrangement and that marriage and tried to stay in this violent relationship. Eventually wasn't able to, so left the marriage in the process of rebuilding her life. Uh, fell in love with someone she chose. The family and the wider community found out about that and decided that she had to die. So that decision was made, and just a, a, a month or so after that, she was strangled, raped, put into a suitcase naked, and buried six feet under in an in a abandoned house in Birmingham, England. And the reason that I wanted to tell her story is not just because of that, but also while she was alive, she had gone to the police in England, in London, five times, asking for help, saying that this is what's going to happen to me, and nobody believed her. So this was, to me, the most extreme case and most extreme consequence that I could try and help people 
look at and understand that if we get this wrong, if we don't understand what's happening with our kids, then this is the worst outcome of that. Obviously, not everyone's trajectory is like that, but this is this is somebody who's been failed and misunderstood by everybody, and this is how she ended up. So my brother says, I get invited to this conference thing, and I'm like, I'm don't want, not interested. No public speaking, don't want to do it, hate it. Mm-hmm. And he said, look, you have to do it. And the reason you have to do it is, he said, because she can't be there. Banaz cannot be there. He said, look, it's not about you. Because I said, I, yeah, because I said, I hate speaking publicly. I don't like this. I don't. He said, it's not about you. He said, go and speak for her and speak as her ambassador. And that's it. And, he's, and, and, and he said, just, and I get goosebumps even thinking about it. He said, just imagine her standing next to you. Mm. right here on stage with you and that's it that's you, you, she just can't say it so you just say it and I, I mean I still get goes but but so I did it that gave you the courage to yeah tell. yeah you and, all the, and all the nervousness all the all the, the all that gone gone now let's talk about Banaz really quick what was the most powerful experience you had while filming that film because it was your mm. first major film it yeah. did incredibly well first film at all at yeah. all yeah. and it won an Emmy yeah so what was the most powerful experience you had while making that film um, was two things, or, or, or it's related. I remember being in London at one point, in a hotel, I think, somewhere for some reason, and uh, or maybe it was somewhere else in England, and it was a documentary on TV, and it was about this young black family that had lost their young child in a stabbing in a school in England. And, you know, his sister was on there talking about how much she missed him, and they were sharing photos and little videos of him and the mother and the friends and all kinds of people who loved him. We're talking about him in this documentary. And I remember sitting there feeling so sad that I had spent the last four years trying to make a film about the story of Banaz. And I didn't have that. I didn't have any family members or any friends or anybody that loved her willing to speak about her lovingly. And that made me so sad. So, so sad. I, they talked to me on the phone. I, I remember hmm. speaking to one of her teachers saying she was really bright. She was really loving. She was shy. She was this, she was that. And I remember just going, why won't you just please say that? Just, just give us some sense of what she was like. So the hardest thing was that she was absent from her own story. Nobody's willing to talk about her. The only people talking about her came to know her after she died. So it's people who investigated her case or prosecuted her case. And then finally managed to get her sister, one of her sisters, to agree. I'd, so I've spent four years filming and trying to piece together this story. And I'm editing it, mind you, with her being fairly absent from her, her film, from her own story. And then one of the police officers that I'd been filming with, he was supposed to give me a little uh, mobile phone uh, chip uh, memory card that mm-hmm. had on it a video that was recorded of Banaz after the first murder attempt against her. Oh, there were multiple. Yeah, there were, it was, the first one was failed, yeah, and then it happened again. And so she was in the hospital and her boyfriend had filmed her for a few moments and I said, I, that's one of the only pieces of footage that exists of her. I, I just re- I really want to include that. So the police officer brought that from evidence and said, here you go. And then he also had a VHS tape, and he said, this is probably nothing. This was at the bottom of the, the case. It's been there for seven years. It's probably nothing. But anyway, whatever, you take it. Took it, put it in my purse, and I went and I looked at the memory card that, that I'd asked for. It had nothing on it. So I was really annoyed and thought, oh, so even that's been scrapped or it's broken or whatever. 
And that VHS tape, I carried around for like two or three weeks in my purse, thinking, he said it's nothing, so it's probably nothing. The thing that was supposed to be something was, was nothing. nothing. So this definitely is it's nothing. nothing. <laughs> exactly. So eventually, finally rent a VHS machine, sitting in the editing suite, try, almost finished with the film, editing the film. Put the tape in, it's this crackly you know, stuff at the beginning, and then suddenly there's a room, and the door opens, and Banaz walks in, sits down, and it's a multiple hour long police interview. And that's where you got the footage for it. That's that was right. the footage. That's the footage. And, and, she, and she starts speaking and she said, okay, Banaz, now tell us, but I, I, mean, I, I still get goosebumps. And I, I just instantly reached over to the, the screen and just said, oh my goodness, there you are. And I said, it's so nice to finally meet you. And I, I'm so sorry. And so I recut the whole film, re-edited re the entire film because now she got to tell her own story. So now it was in her own words. Nobody else was willing to speak about her. So she showed up. Oh my gosh, how powerful. Isn't it incredible? Oh my four gosh. Years. Did you four years of filming. Can I ask you something? Did you cry when you saw that? Yes. Thing? God. Oh my goodness, yes. Oh my goodness. You finally got to meet her. Yeah. And she's explaining everything herself. Yeah, my God. And the police that gave it to me had never seen it. It's nothing. Don't it's, worry pro about it. it's probably nothing. It's, it's probably at the nothing. bottom of the evidence box. It's and been it was sitting everything. there for seven years. Yeah. It was her. It was and it was her. her. And then I invited the, um, the police officer who had investigated Banaz's case and finally brought her killers to justice. Yeah. Uh, she watched it and she'd never seen it. And she's sitting there just sobbing as well. And then that film changed my life. And the theme of this podcast, Stories of Transformation, let's talk about how Banaz, the film, your film, your Emmy-winning film, changes your life. Let's talk about how it transformed your, your sense of identity, your responsibility, <laughs> your notion as a filmmaker, what led, led to, you know, what was next, how this kind of all played out. So when I made the film, I made it not really for it to win an Emmy or for it even really to be seen by kind of, you know, mainstream audiences. I was making it because I wanted to do right by her and her story. It was a very famous case. It was, it was covered massively in all kinds of media. So it was a very well-known case, but I didn't feel like it, the story was told in a way where, where her experiences were central. I mm -hmm. felt like it was always about everything else. And I felt like mm -hmm. it was always just about the shock and the horror of everything. So I just wanted to do right by her story and to tell it as well as I possibly could. And I wanted it to be used as an educational tool uh, for people to understand what these crimes are like, what the lives and circumstances of girls like that are like, and that you know points of intervention are very, very few. And so how people should react and how people should respond and support and protect women who are at risk of violence like that and how they should be listened to. So my point was I was going to put it on YouTube, I was going to give it to women's organizations, I was going to give it to different activists and say, you use it as a training tool and as an awareness raising tool and that's it. And, and the way it went from that to something else was as doing that and then somebody said, there's this festival called the Rain Dance Film Festival in London. I said, I've never heard of it, it doesn't mean anything to me. They said, you should send it. It's a very good film, you should send it. And I, so I sort of begrudgingly did it. I think even my colleague might have done that. I don't think I even did it. Did it. It got selected. They were like, yeah, we're going to show it. We're going to do multiple screenings. I wasn't even at the, at the screenings or at the premiere or anything. I was like, this is just silly. 
uh, ITV, the, one of the largest TV channels in England, some of their representatives were present at one of the screenings, and they were like, this is, this is, we would like to have this. I said, no, you cannot have it. You're going to ruin it. You're going to make it into some sensationalist sort of piece in the way that the story's always been reported, so you can't have it. And they're like, no, 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 no. Like, you're not understanding. We just, we just want it. We need to cut down, I think, 10 minutes or 15 minutes to fit our slot. And I said, see, you're going to destroy it. So no, they said, no, no, you can do it. You edit it down. And they just hand it to us and we'll broadcast it. And they honored that. And I did. They put it on. They submitted it to the Emmys and to wherever else it ended up going. And then suddenly I get to hear, oh, you know, it's been nominated for an Emmy. It's, you know, are you sitting down? Is it this? I'm going, this is ridiculous. And then I'm sitting there at the Emmys. Uh, it was just me and my brother. Nobody thought it was going to win. It was a, I couldn't even afford to go to New York. It was, it was in New York, the, the international Emmys. Yeah. And the way I managed to get there was there was a Norwegian newspaper that said, oh, can we do like a brother and sister type story of, you know, you and your you know, brother going to New York and hanging out, you know, whatever. You know, you're obviously not going to win the Emmy, but that can be kind of the backdrop of the main story is, you know, brother and sister. And I was like, well, great. And they said, we'll pay your tickets. I said, fantastic. Brilliant. And we'll give you one hotel room. I was like, we'll crash in the same room. Doesn't matter. Just do it. Did that. So that's how we go to the Emmys. We're sitting there. It's just me and him. No ITV. Nobody. Because nobody thinks it's going to happen. And we're sitting there. And then I got really choked up because they, on the huge screen, when they send, you know, the nominations are blah, blah. And then it's Banaz, and they chose her clip, her speaking, and she's talking. And I got really choked up and really sad and also really proud that she was speaking in a room like that. So I'm thinking about that, and the next thing I know, no idea what they've just said, next thing I hear is my brother, like, screaming, and I ducked. I was like, oh, it's a bomb or something. What, what happened? He's like, he's like, it's you. It's fucking you. Get the fuck up. It's you. And I'm going, What? He's like, and he's put, and people are staring at me because I didn't hear it. Didn't Your he? mind was elsewhere. I was thinking about her, and I was very emotional and th- kind of sad and proud and happy, and was like, "We won. We're, we're, we're. She's being played here. That's the win." I was so proud. He's like, "Get up, get up." Did you prepare a speech? You no. had nothing. No, who does that? No, no. And then I'm stumbling up, and I'm hugging everybody, and, we're, and I was, you have no idea what you've just done. And I was just, I don't even know if I said anything. I have no idea. But that's all I remember. And then I remember, you know, taking photos or something backstage. Suddenly they're going, do this, and, you know, stand there. And I'm going, no idea. And I just kept saying, where's my brother? I just just want to go to my brother. I just, where's my brother? And then they finally got me back into the thing. I found him, and I just grabbed him, and I started crying. And then we took the Emmys, and people were like, oh, there's a party. There's this. You should network. You should blah. HBO is going to be there. So-and-so, so you should come. And I was almost shaking. And I said, no. So I grabbed my brother's arm and Emmy in the other hand, took off my high heels and we just walked out and then went to some crappy Chinese place, ate out of styrofoam plates and plastic knife with the Emmy on the table, completely silent, just stared at each other, just eating, going, oh my goodness, oh my, what just happened? And then went to the hotel and slept and his phone is ringing off the hook. Can we get a comment from her? Because nobody in Norway apparently had won an Emmy at the front. So they're going, oh my goodness. And it was front cover. Can we get a comment? And he's like, no, she's in no state <laughs> to give a comment. So Idea, I just went to sleep. Incredible. So I just went to sleep. I was like, oh, this, is, this is too much. Shut down. Yeah, overload. Not, not interested. So, this, this was not supposed to happen. So when you went, oh my gosh, that's fascinating. 
I cannot even imagine what's going on in your mind. So when you wake up from your deep sleep, mm. what was the next day like? Surreal. Just disbelief. And then yeah. the thing is sitting there, of course. Yeah, and that wasn't a dream. That was real. But yeah, and I'm going, oh my goodness, it's still there. This is, I still find it unbelievable. Now, did you use that experience as a catalyst to make your two other films? Like, did yeah. you use it as momentum? Yeah, because yeah. I, I wasn't, up until that point, as I say, filmmaking was not the point. The point was to build understanding. Understood. But this was validation that your filmmaking not only, not only built understanding, but it actually is telling a story that's necessary to be told. Well, right? well, and, and what, what it meant for me at the time was maybe I should take this as an opportunity and as an invitation to try and tell other stories. Now that led you to Jihad. Jihad, yeah. And now that also led you to White Right. Yeah. And what's interesting about these two films, if I may, uh, although they're about two different groups of extremists, yeah. there's an underlying current in which you find out, I think, through your storytelling of these subjects in both films that they're more similar than dissimilar. Yeah. Now, can you talk about that? What did you learn about yourself through these two films, I think? And then also, too, what did you learn about your subjects that made you think, okay, there's something deeper than in the context of jihad Islam, in the context of white supremacy, you know, fear the other. What exactly did you learn? So for me, I think the, the biggest sort of feeling that I walked away with from both films was a sense of liberation from my own fear of men like that. Oh, fascinating. Right? So, so I had entered both films uh, fairly pessimistic in terms of the, the kinds of people they are and in, and in terms of what is possible or not possible with human beings like that. But leaving both films, I left feeling liberated, no longer afraid of them, um, and not only not afraid of them, but also feeling like I could understand them better. Not agree with them, but understand them better. And I would say, you know, having been on the receiving end of death threats from both those extremes. As a young, as a young as, girl, as, 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 as a, a Yeah, and, and even still now. Mm -hmm. um, and, so, you know, and reading those threats and, you know, going through those threats, it's, it's, I sort of joked about it a little bit that it's, it's, um, it might as well be the same guy, you know, and then having sat down with them and spent time with both, both extremes, listening to their stories, what they were going through in their lives, uh, when they became involved in violence like this and in, and in extreme groups like this, and also what the extremist groups were providing and satisfying for them as mm -hmm. human beings. I stand by, it might as well be the same guy. The window dressing might be different. The flags might be different. The, the, the slogans might be different. And the color of their uniforms might be different. But the kind of guy that, that is drawn to it is the same. What that guy is sold is a lot of the same. What that guy is having satisfied in terms of his basic human needs through joining a group like that is the same. And also the exploitation of those feelings by groups like that is also the same. The, the cynical nature of the, the exploitation of those feelings, I think, is also the same. Yeah, so this idea of these, these men in both extremes feeling as though they're, they're in a vulnerable place, they're alienated, and they need somebody, and these father figures yeah. come into the picture, like you said, yeah. and they uh, give them that feeling of, Feeling powerful. Yeah, feeling powerful, feeling 
I mean, for someone who is powerless and feels powerless for most of their lives, for suddenly to suddenly feel like they matter, to suddenly feel like they're being heard and seen, to feel like they're doing something that is greater than themselves and in their eyes is something noble, something important, um, something meaningful, to finally have a purpose in your life, to finally feel you have a community that you can belong to, to feel that you have found a sense of acceptance within that community. So for somebody who feels rejected, and for somebody who feels alone, and for somebody who feels powerless and feels invisible, those are very, very powerful solutions to those human needs. And everything I've said are all the same things I think you and I and most people yearn for as well. So it's, I don't think people searching for that, there's anything wrong with it. It's just that it's unfortunate and dangerous and sad that they're having those needs met in such a destructive way. Fascinating. So, so let's talk about this idea of danger here because the subjects in which you interview, Dia, they're violent, mm. right? And they want to instill violence and they want to cause harm to people that they hate or those that have a worldview that aren't in accordance with theirs. Yeah. So how did you, as a filmmaker, conquer your own fears when interviewing them, when going and spending time with them? I'm thinking in particular the amazing footage that you captured while in Charlottesville. Mm. You were there for that. Let's talk about that. Yeah. Let's talk about how that happened and how that manifested. You went from Chicago all the way to Charlottesville? In the from Michigan. For, from Michigan. Yeah, yes. So I, I did this interview with uh, the, the leader of the largest <clears throat> and oldest neo-Nazi organization in America. Mm. He's one of the first people to agree to meet with me. And he'd said that, you know, you get one hour and after that, you know, basically sort of need to disappear. I was like, okay. And you come to this motel room, you come to this particular place and... And that'll be that. So five hours later, after talking and talking and talking and talking with him, uh, he said, look, we're going to this event, this rally. There's this public rally we're going mm -hmm. to go to uh, in Charlottesville. What was, year is this deal? What year? This was, it's still 20, it was 2017. It was just a couple of months before. And he says, you know, you're welcome to join us. You know, you're welcome to come. You know, you can come along with us if you want to continue filming. And I was like, sounds great. Never heard of Charlottesville, I don't think. And okay, not sure what this is. Probably like some pathetic four or five guys with some placards. And Little did you know. They're going to shout some people down. Actually, I had gone to Charlottesville. Was it Charlottesville? It was Charlottesville, yes. A f maybe a month or so before. And that's what it was like. It was maybe 15, 16 KKK members were hosting like a rally for this, the same thing, the, the, some of the statues, the Confederate statues. And the counter protest to that, I think was like in the thousands. Mm -hmm. So I remember being there and thinking, oh, this is just ridiculous. And so when he said, I don't think it clicked in my mind that it's the same place, but when he said, oh, you know, we're gonna have a rally for our cause, I was like, it's gonna be like a handful of toothless guys and that'll be that, great. So no problem, but at least I get to spend more time with him. That's all, I don't care about this rally thing. So then we decided, I said, look, can I join you even on your way to Charlottesville? Because he's in Detroit. And he said, well, uh, okay, I mean, that's a bit strange, but okay. And I said, yeah, because I wanted to spend time with him and hear more from him. Did you know that by being exposed to him that you could potentially change his mind? Was oh, that the intention? No. no, you just wanted to get to know no, more about him. No, 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 okay. oh, no, 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 okay. no. I mean, change was never even on the uh, cards or it wasn't even really an option Understood. or a thought. For me, it was me trying to understand him and can I, can I figure this out? Can I figure out 
why he does this and what this does for him. Mm-hmm. And also in the, the, the initial five hours that we've spent together, some of his reactions to some of my questions uh, surprised me a little bit or intrigued me to the point where I, I definitely wanted to spend more time with him to see what else is there. I read him some of the death threats that I received from white supremacists, and that made him very uncomfortable. And that made me almost sort of chuckle because I, I'm looking at him going, you're a Nazi. You're training these people. Yeah, I mean, this is not, none of these words are new words to you. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not like you haven't used them yourself or your fellow travelers don't use them. So the fact that you're experiencing visible discomfort in front of me, I, d- I found that really interesting. And I was like, I want to spend more time. That's fascinating. I wanna, it was really fascinating to me. I mean, the none, head none of the, the yeah. largest neo-Nazi yeah. organization was feeling a sense of un- discomfort. Discomfort, when, and, and he he didn't want me to keep saying some of the. When he said, "Oh, you you know you can come along," I said, "Well, will I be?" I think I even say it on camera. I think you know, will I be safe? You know, as a shit skin. So I would use some of the words from the death threats to me, and I said, "You know, will I be safe as a shit skin coming along with you?" And he said, "Uh, why do you keep saying that?" I said, "Well, you know, that's how I'm that's described. What you guys call me, so I'm just saying that." And the fact that it kept irritating him and making him feel uncomfortable, I found it fascinating. So anyway, so I wanted to spend more time with him. So I took the opportunity to the, for this rally thing to go, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I sat in a car with him and some of his people for nine hours. They drove from Detroit to Charlottesville. And these guys had guns. They were yeah, getting yeah. violent. I oh, mean, yeah, young yeah, men yeah, drinking yeah, probably. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And one of the guys in the car was not happy that I was in the car. He was very on edge. Uh, and him and I had kind of had it out mm-hmm. after Charlottesville. And not stable. Like, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, there was some lone shooter story came out and it was from him. him. Yeah. Uh, very, very on edge and very tense with me. Did that. And then, you know, the day of, they said, oh, you know, we're going to meet at six o'clock in the morning. You know, we're going to this place and then we're going to this other place and blah. And we go, and all these groups are gathering in this huge parking lot outside of Charlottesville. And then I sort of got a little bit separated from this organization that I was filming with by some of the others. And they said, hey, you need to come over, you know, and they do this thing, I hate it, this, this, yeah. Mm. Come over, you know, who are you? Who are you with? Where are you from? What is this? What is that? so a lot of people that had problems and then another group came in and pe- some of the, the mellower Nazis were saying, don't look at them. Just oh, like, more mellow Nazis. Yeah, believe it or not. But there's this other group that's there, like they're very, very violent. Like, you know, they just beat people for fun. You know, and, uh, and I met, a, there was one writer, a Norwegian journalist there. And he said, oh yeah, I've spent time with this other group. And he said, yeah, you know, like he saw them beat somebody till like one of the eyes came I like disgusting stuff yeah. you know and of course they walk past me and he's like don't look at them just don't look at just do not make eye contact because I'm the only person of color there like everybody else is white um, and have these types of feelings and of course they slow down in front of me and <laughs> they're looking at me and I'm going oh don't look don't look don't say anything don't look don't look just breathe it's okay that's terrifying uh, and then we walk in and then, you know, so I'm filming with them. So I'm with this huge number of guys that are Nazis and Klansmen and all of that, you know, walking into the actual rally. And then, of course, the violence and the tear gas and the, just the madness began. And it was terrifying. And then I'm looking at the police. They're standing back. I'd already talked to the police the um, morning before or something like that. 
but the people I talk to are nowhere to be found. So I'm just going, oh my goodness me, what am I going to do? Uh, I don't really talk about this publicly, but why not? Uh, and I was pregnant. Oh my gosh. Yeah. You, oh my gosh, you yes. knew you were pregnant too. No, no, I, I, was, I was like five, six months pregnant. Because oh in gosh. the whole film, if you watch it again, you can see I'm, I'm I was just wearing very baggy clothes and scarves on top of very baggy clothes and many, many layers to keep anyone from seeing because I'd, I mean, I would constantly overhear them. And even in Charlottesville, when they got kicked out of one of the venues and they were walking to another space, <clears throat> I was walking behind some of the guys and they were making jokes and talking about immigrant women and cockroaches and all of this kind of stuff and how yeah. basically women of color should be forcibly sterilized so that more cockroaches aren't born. And I'm, you know, I'm just going, oh, suck in your tummy, which you can't at month five, six, you know? But it's instilling a great sense of fear. Oh, my goodness. But then I'm also going, don't be afraid because I don't want to shoot kind of, you know unhealthy hormones into my own but you know just going just don't stress don't want to cause any kind of stress and then the pepper spray I got pepper sprayed and I remember googling as soon as I go back to the motel going you know effects on fetus or you know oh my pepper gosh. spray yeah yeah I mean oh thankfully everything's gosh. fine but yeah so I was massively pregnant nobody knew and, and uh, I hadn't told anyone really what I was doing very much either. So yeah, you must have given somebody your phone. Like when you were driving, like what if something happened? What if I that had guy... one colleague in the in the car with me? You did, Darren, yeah. Um, oh, Darren, who we met today. Yeah, yeah. Wonderful. So so, but I hadn't told anybody else. And then also because after Charlottesville, the whole violence and everything, Culpepper said to me, Brian Culpepper, which was at the time the the media liaison of of, of the Nazi organization. He said to me, there's this uh, compound in the mountains of Virginia and you can come there and a lot of the groups will be there and they're willing to talk to you. And I said, fantastic, this is great. Wow, right, right, great. Right. Go drive up these dirt roads in the car with him. Thought, okay, this is, wow, okay. And I remember picking up my camera out of his car and Darren, my colleague, said, put the camera back in. I said, oh, he said it's fine to film. He said, no, no, put it back in. And if everything is okay, we can always come back and we can get the camera. But let's go look first. Let's just go look, make sure everything is okay. And I was like, oh, okay. He says it's fine, but okay. Start walking down this, this uh, dirt road. I only have my mobile phone in my hand. And people start screaming. From the bottom, they start screaming and they start walking up. And they've got guns and beers in their hands, I can see. And they're just cursing. And they go, who the fuck are you? Are you That's fucking terrifying. media? Are you this? Are you fucking Jews? Are you fucking this? What are you? And you put your hands up, put your hands up, put your hands up. And oh. I'm doing this with my phone. And then I'm looking at my phone. I said, oh, no signal. Oh, my God. I know. And I'm going, oh, okay, okay, this is it. This is it. You, you thought it was on. You thought your I life thought was this, ending. I thought this is going to be it. This, this is it. Because I'm thinking dirt road. I don't know where I am. It's a compound. In the, and they're massively armed. And they're bruised. And they're drunk. Today, and they're very drunk. And I'm the only person here. And then Brian, the guy that was my guy, basically, was there. He disappears because he's oh. going to try and get people to calm it down. The he person the who approved it. He was the only guy that could vouch for you. Yes. Uh, so he disappears somewhere to go get the person he'd talked to or whatever. Myself and my colleague, we get separated. So they're taking him over to that side, shouting at him, shouting at me here, up in my face. What kind of fucking Muslim are you? Rah, 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 rah. And I'm just going, and then, are you Shia? Are you Sunni? And I, and I, I almost just kind of go, what, what, what does that have to do with anything? What, what, what right. is that? Right, right. And shouting and cursing and you this and anyway. And then finally, Brian managed to get somebody and we 
managed to leave. But I remember thinking that they can put a bullet in my head, put me six feet under, nobody's going to know. And that's what's going through my head, going, nobody's going to find me because I haven't told anybody. Nobody knows where you are. No. So, so the, my biggest concern was nobody's going to find me. Nobody's going to be able to, if, if they do this now, you know, the, psh, that's it. And you're pregnant. And I'm pregnant. So this is it. This is, this is it. The, the, you know, that's how it goes, basically. I mean, what do you do? Talk about fear. So Have you ever find, been more scared in your life? Or was that the, like, the most that's scared? One, that's definitely one of the most terrifying experiences, definitely. Yeah. Uh, finally got, and finally, once I got back to the motel, instantly contacted my colleagues back in London, one of them, and said, here's my mother's phone number, here's my brother's phone number. If you don't hear from me every couple of days, you let them know that something's happened. Uh, and she said, yeah, no problem, you know, all of that. But yeah, your original question was, how did I... <laughs> How did you how do you conquer the fear that you have to deal with when when making these films right like you were there for Charlottesville and yeah. that's a very very that was a tumultuous time. Well, but a lot of it also was unexpected. Right. So I think the fear also kicks in if you have time to be afraid. Ah. Right? So I mean everything happened really fast. I was there in in violence and you do the best to to you know keep away. You know, and you don't want somebody just kicking you in the stomach just to you know, abort for you. I mean, this, so there's a hundred things going through your mind. But in terms of what do you do with the fear once it does kick in or you realize that you're afraid, you push through it. I mean, it's... There's no way out at that no. point. You're in so, it. so what is the fear going to do? So it actually is not particularly useful. So you put it aside, actually, as, as clinical as that sounds. But you have no other choice. You recognize it's there and just ignore yeah, it. Yeah, you have to. And also everything else kicks in. I mean, survival kicks in. If I allow myself to feel afraid, especially in those very, very tough and tense circumstances, then I feel like I've already handed over. And the other thing is, even when it wasn't as violent and as kind of imminently dangerous, but I was just sitting one-on-one -on -one with these guys and at any moment they can do something, very consciously I didn't want to be afraid because... They could have seen right through that. They want that. So I'm not about to give them that what they want. That's not what this was going to be about. You know, they don't get to get off on scaring the, the brown lady. You know, so I, I was very, very consciously not going to let them walk away with that. Oh my gosh, that's so interesting. And you could tell that they knew that. Of course. That's why they do some of the things that they do. And so if you hand them that satisfaction, you've already, the, the dynamic won. has already changed. Yes. Now and so I'm not allowing them to do that. Now let's talk about the dynamic you had with these neo-Nazi skinheads. You throughout the film, through the exposure, you've actually, you're, you're able to show that the, you're able to change the minds of these individuals. So not only are they getting you know, uncomfortable by hearing the messages that are sent to you that you read aloud to them, but actually through the filming of these interviews, they're slowly, slowly taking a liking to you in the sense that they're becoming empathetic. Yeah. Oh, you're not like other Muslims. You're I'm becoming my friend. a human being. Yeah. Right. You've yeah. asked them specific questions like, yeah. well, well, you know, I represent Muslims. What do you, how do you feel about it? And well, you're not that type of Muslim. Yeah. And they, and they, and they try to separate you yeah. from what uh, they believe to be wrong or they believe to be something detrimental to their existence. Yeah. How does that happen? Well, I think it happens with spending time. Mm. actual time together so I, I tried with all of them to spend as much time as I possibly could sometimes that meant three hours other times it meant three days yeah. 
So I never wanted them to change their mind. That, that was never an option. It wasn't even a possibility. But what I did want them to do, the whole purpose of making the film for me was I wanted to try and see if I can understand them and I want to see if they're able to understand me. Are we able to just get to that point? I know I'm not going to change my views and I know he's not going to change his. But can we at least get to a point where I, because I am at, at fault for this as well, can I recognize their humanity and in doing so can they recognize mine that was the point of the film what actually ended up happening Charlottesville none of that was the point so that was my point so with that being the point of the film all the conversations that I had with them I tried my best wherever it was possible to see if I can put them in a place where they could every once in a while get to feel or get to hear or imagine mm. what it might be like for me because I was constantly doing that with them I was trying to understand what it must be like for them growing up in the circumstances that they grew up in but could they do the same with me so I would constantly you know bring up things about my childhood bring up things about my dad bring up things about you know uh, attacks and harassment that I had faced or friends had faced all of that to constantly see can you Tweak you it? Get it. Can you trigger it? Now, you, you would Can say you this it? without them asking. <clears throat> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. we will be talking like we're talking. Sure, 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 sure. sure. It wasn't really a, I have my list of questions and now you answer, Mr. Nazi. It wasn't like that. It was more a conversation, kind of getting to know each other. So I would try to make them, put them wherever I could mm -hmm. in my shoes and see if that was of any relevance or not. And then also, you know, then some of them would start calling me, well, I think I consider you a friend, right. you know, but then also what does that mean? Right. What does a friend mean? Does that, you know, if, if you had to deport me, you know, would you do that? You know, because your ideology says you, you should. Would you be able to do that? Well, yes, no, hmm, yeah, well, yes, 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 I would have to do that. You start seeing certain things like that, that of course I'm just salivating and going, oh, this is so interesting, my goodness. You know, he's willing to engage in these different scenarios and these conversations. So, yeah, so the conversation sort of continued. But, I mean, having spoken with them since... Mm -hmm. Since is, the release of the film. Yeah, is that they didn't expect me to be willing to listen to them. They thought I was going to come out, hammer them with questions. They would say some Nazi things. I would yell back. I would get my great Nazi quotes and then I would get myself on camera really, you know, disagreeing with them and arguing with them and then I would leave. They were they said they were thrown off and surprised by the fact that I actually sat down and I actually listened and I actually talked to them as if they're human beings. And they're not used to that. I didn't treat them like a monster. I also didn't agree with them and that was very very clear from the beginning to the end that I don't agree with you. So they were satisfied with the depiction that you presented to the world via the film of them? They didn't like that they came across soft, they said. Get out of here. Yeah, which to me is really interesting. Oh, that's because the jihadis, so when the jihad film came out, yeah. there were, and, and for, unfortunately or fortunately, I don't know what to say, I feel it's unfortunate, but these young guys from the UK had gone to Syria. Yeah. And they would sometimes post videos online. And I don't know how they'd seen the jihad film. But they had, and they sent me a message, this ranty message, basically saying, why are you making us look weak? We are brave, we are courageous, we are honorable, why are you making us, even though the film is not about them, it's about other guys, but it's other guys like them, why are you making us look weak? Fascinating. 
It's really interesting. And so the fact that, the, you know, the fast forward, the, the white right guys, yeah. they, were, they said they were uncomfortable with that. But I said, but was I unfair to you? Do you feel like I have depicted you incorrectly? And they said, no, no. But you they have, wanted you, you oh, that's incredible. But they wanted you to depict them in such a way where tough. they were seen as strong and, and powerful. Tough. Yeah, because what they, because here's the thing. They want to be tough. Yes. So, so if, if we think that we just shout at them, and call them a Nazi, and then we can pat ourselves on the back and we can say, we've done a really good job. Yeah. Right? I really yeah. challenged him. I really blah, blah. And yeah. That's great. That's actually what they want because it makes them look good. It makes them talk, throw out their talking points. It makes them look like they had this kind of tough engagement uh, and they didn't back down and they got called some names, which was really unfair. So they can also be sort of the victim of it, victim of just unfair treatment. So to be treated as a human being... Mm. And as vulnerable as somebody who has feelings, as somebody who makes mistakes, as somebody who says the wrong thing and sometimes the right thing and doesn't quite know always, that complexity of actually being a human being, that is what they liked, but is also what threw them off and what they didn't expect, but is also why they continued talking to me, because they'd never been spoken to in that way before. So what have you learned about human beings based on not only the films that you made about extremists on both mm -hmm. on jihadis or neo-Nazis, what has that taught you about how we should go about engaging with those that have a completely different worldview, even a worldview that can be detrimental to us? I think what I've learned is that people are people, uh, despite the kind of caricatures or even the self image that they try to portray as being monsters because there's yeah. power in being a monster you know being the monster you have a really important part in the story you yeah. matter you matter you matter and the world has to deal with you they have to reckon with you so that's very powerful and very intoxicating i think so i think not playing into their fantasies is really important there's been some people that have talked because I'm not a journalist as you know I'm, I just make films I come from a completely different background <clears throat> some journalists have asked me they said well isn't it a bad thing that you're humanizing these really monstrous people and to me actually that's key it's key to humanize them because it takes away the veneer mm. and the image that they want us to have of them them being the monster and the boogeyman actually is what they want it gives them power, it gives them relevance, it gives them prominence, gives them respect and fear, or, you know, that's one and the same sometimes, I guess. Not playing into that is actually far more effective. And to show them as vulnerable human beings actually takes away a lot of the mystique. And I think in some ways by showing them as big, rah, 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 I think actually in many ways that's glamorizing them. It it's, plays into the story they tell themselves. Exactly, exactly. And I'm not interested in that. Mm -hmm. I love that. I'm interested in their vulnerabilities. I'm interested in what makes them human and not this kind of Superman, super bad, tough guy image on both sides that they want to portray. Now, through these, through these films, what did you learn? Who did you learn the enemy to be? Was it the neo-Nazis? Was it the jihadis? Who was the enemy? I think it's... The failures of our society is really the enemy. I think the, our, our structures in our societies that, that lets down kids. I think that keeps inequality in place, that keeps people separate from each other, that keeps people fearing each other, that makes a young man think that his life is worth being destroyed 
for somebody else's cause that's not even his. I think it's the people that cynically are manipulating the, the, the sorrows and the brokenness of our young people. Mm-hmm. But I did not find the individuals themselves to be the enemy. I really didn't. I, I found some very, very, very troubling people. Broken. And, uh, broken, most of them broken. Some of them I would say kind of sociopaths, psychopaths, mm-hmm. some of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, not everybody is broken, so I also mm-hmm. don't want to paint a picture of everyone, you know. But I do think change is possible. I've, I've walked away, as I said, far more hopeful that change is possible, that positive change is possible, but I think it's going to require us as individuals to also do our part. I think yeah. just judging people, just calling them names, and just patting ourselves on the back for having the correct politics, having the correct friends, having the correct house, car, opinions, yeah. uh, articles that we share on you know, Twitter and whatever, yeah. is, is not really enough. You know, People are people, and these people exist. These people exist in our society. So we either deal with that, and we try to, because I can't remember who was asking me, but somebody was saying, well, this isn't really scalable, and you know, it's just one Nazi. To me, the goal is less racists. And one Nazi is less. <laughs> That's one less. That's one less. Right? So, so That's right. I think condemning people and our kind of own self-righteousness, I don't think is very helpful. I don't think that really accomplishes very much, yeah. other than kind of it strokes our own ego, I guess. Uh, but that, I mean, that's a bit boring <laughs> after a while. Um, I, I understand violence will always be there. I understand that extremist groups will always be there in one form or another, whether it's a street gang, like just a street violent gang, or it's a neo-Nazi group, or it's a jihadi group, or it's a whatever militia group. I understand that these will all exist. Sure. But we can certainly do a better job at reducing their appeal and reducing the numbers of young men, our young men, that they swallow up and destroy. Yeah. Dee, I have one last thing I'd like to say before going to the last section of this uh, interview. I'd like to read this quote and just tell me what you feel about it, okay? Mm-hmm. The child who is not embraced by the village will burn it down to feel its warmth. How do you feel about that? That's one of my absolute all-time favorite quotes. Uh, I actually used it in my, my TED talk as well. I mean, to me, that's the essence of everything we've been talking about. Yeah. I think when people are not embraced, when people are not accepted and seen and heard and valued for who they really are and aren't supported and encouraged to flourish and be the best that they can be, Mm -hmm. that they have the capacity to be. I think when you reject and you other and you judge and you exclude, you put people in a place of feeling alone and feeling lost we all have these basic human needs that we've you know, talked about, sense of belonging, purpose, meaning, all of these things, and connection and love and all of this. We will find a way to satisfy those needs. That's just what we, that's how we're wired. Whether it's positive or negative, it's totally up to us. We, we will absolutely fulfill that, absolutely. So if we as a society, as a community, as a village, do not stand by our young people, who fall down sometimes, who make a mistake sometimes, who take a wrong turn sometimes, then who's going to? They belong to us, all of them. The broken ones, the whole ones, the talented ones, the not-so-talented ones, they all belong to us. I always say this. I found that it was hard for people to hear it when I would say things like that, more hard for them to hear it when I would say it about the jihadis than when I say it about the white supremacists. But I would try to make people understand that these kids are our kids. They mm-hmm. belong to our society. And our behavior right now is showing them the opposite. 
And that validates what these recruiters and these people are saying to these kids. I mean, just look at the example of, of you know, the returnees now that they're talking about in the UK and in all kinds of places. In the UK, you know, this young girl who went over when she was, you know, 14, 15 years old and her parents are from Bangladesh and the Brits are stripping her of her citizenship and saying that she needs to be sent to Bangladesh. She's never been to Bangladesh. Her parents are from Bangladesh. What the Brits are doing by that in my opinion, is they are validating the worldview that she held when she left to go join ISIS, which is, I am not of you. You don't treat me as if I'm one of you. So I'm going somewhere else. And, and that state is now proving that she was right. It's proving that she, she, you are not our child. It, the thing is, I have a child now, but I, I was perfectly able to imagine this before I had my own daughter as well, which mm -hmm. is when it's truly your own child, when it's truly somebody that you actually care about, when they go off the rails, you stick it through with them because you love them and you want them to be okay. It doesn't matter. You, I mean, and I've used my brother as an example. If he became a radical or a something, I would do everything in my power to help him change. I would beat him up. Mm -hmm. I would love him. I will cry in front of him. I will lock him in a room. I will do whatever I can mm -hmm. to try and protect him or to protect other people from him. If Point I is you to. would commit to but trying. But I would commit to him because I love him and I care about him. What we are showing these kids mm -hmm. by giving up on them and just chucking them in prison is we don't really actually care about you. You don't matter. You don't matter. And so they're going to find a way to burn the world to yes. let people know that they are powerful. Exactly, and that they do matter, that you will have to deal with me. I'm not going away, and they are not going away. We can wish them away, we can bury ourselves even deeper in our little silos and our own little echo chambers. Yeah. They will not go away. They only go away if you deal with it. So we have to, as a society, take a responsibility. Yes, people have a responsibility for their own actions, but people don't become who they become just in a vacuum. We all play a part in, in everybody's forming and everybody's either flourishing or everybody's destruction. So we have to do, at least we can do our part and we have to do better. I think, than we are. Okay. Yeah. Great. Okay. I want to go into rapid fire section, if that's okay. Oh, okay. So oh, what, I'm no good at this, no, probably. A, we'll but yes. try. You'd be surprised. Okay. So just kind of give us a response in terms of what comes to your mind first, and we'll take it from there. Are you ready? Okay. Okay. What is one song that you know all the lyrics to? Oh, my goodness. For you, it's probably a lot. No, it's not, actually. <laughs> You're going to really hate me for this. This is really embarrassing. But it's just because I have a little girl now, and her favorite song is Wheels on the Bus Go Round and Round. <laughs> and I hate it. I hate it with such a passion. And it keeps popping into my, my head, like, all the time. Consider it noble because you love your daughter. <laughs> exactly. What did I just say? Stick by your kids. So, yes, I have to stick by the wheels on the bus. Yes. Okay. Uh, what would you tell your 20-year-old self? Uh, it's going to be okay. You're going to be okay. Yeah, I think we need to hear that more often. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, what would you want your last meal to be? Oh, no. Probably my something home-cooked by my mom. Of course. Yeah. Of course. Mother's touch. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Most delicious. So since we're going to talk about your mom, what's one thing that you wish you knew about your parents? Oh, if they feel like they've done okay. You know, you for know all that. the sacrifices they, yeah, I, 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 yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe that's a question you can ask them. When you say I will. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, if you had one superpower, what would it be? Like teleporting, freezing things, Spider-Man, <laughs> whatever, climbing up buildings, no rope. 
Dot com.